0: For a brief period every September, the harsh, freezing weather of the Himalayas lets up. The snow melts away, and the deadliest mountain range in the world becomes almost pleasant.
1: But for one valley tucked high in the peaks, late
0: summer is when the corpses emerge. Each summer, Lake Rupkind begins to unfreeze, uncovering hundreds of rotted skeletons— Nobody knows how all these bodies got here, or who they were. In
1: 1978, college student William Sachs came to Rupkand out of an academic curiosity. He wanted to see the fabled Lake of Skeletons.
0: It was just like what he'd imagined, a sparkling diamond of a lake, roughly six feet deep, barely a hundred feet across and he could hardly take a step without trotting upon remains.
1: Sachs began sifting through the corpses, looking for clues, trying to see what he could unearth. And then, suddenly, he couldn't see anything
0: at all. A blizzard had descended on him out of nowhere, blanketing the entire lake with snow and fog. Before he recognized what was going on, Sachs lost sight of his companions.
1: As he groped around looking for the way out, he began to wonder if the Lake of Skeletons had just claimed another victim.
0: Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly.
1: And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this show, we don't
0: take we don't
1: know for an answer.
0: Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify.
1: This is our one episode on the Lake of Skeletons. Discovered in 1942, Roopkund is nestled in the Himalayan mountains of India, and it's home to hundreds of skeletons. In the 80 years since its discovery, scientists have struggled to explain who these people were,
0: where they came from, and how they died. Today, we'll explore the risks and mysteries related to the lake. Every research expedition to the grisly site forces scientists to brave volatile, sometimes deadly weather. When explorers do manage to return with answers about Rupkind, they often raise entirely new questions.
1: We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us.
0: There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets, and sometimes, their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. The ice-capped Himalayan peaks of the Trishul Mountains stand nearly 23,000 feet above sea level. Its snowy slopes descend into a valley, which is surrounded on all sides by steep inclines.
1: In this valley, at 16,000 feet above sea level, lies Lake Rupkind. Ten months of the year its waters freeze. Snow blankets every surface, hiding whatever lies on the ground.
0: Few organisms can survive in this frigid climate. The nearest human settlement is the village of Juan, but it would take an average of five days to travel from Rupkind to the settlement as you climb 8,000 feet over treacherous terrain and camp overnight in freezing weather. The area
1: is so inhospitable, only two mountain flower species can grow there. One of these, the Brahma Kamal flower, blooms only at night and is considered a harbinger of good luck.
0: It's hard to say whether it was good or bad luck that brought forest ranger Harry Kishan Madwal into the valley on September 2, 1942. Beyond the peaceful Himalayas, the Second World War was raging. India, still a British colony, played a key role. Because the country was midway to the Pacific front, it was an important supply depot. Meanwhile... The Indian people comprised the largest volunteer army in the world as they flocked to join the British military. Madhwal was
1: enlisted as well, but his mission was more peaceful. His assignment was to collect samples of those two rare alpine flowers with help from an assistant
0: and guides from a nearby village. It had been a long morning, and Madhwal and his companions knew they were short on time. A storm cloud hovered nearby. As soon as it rolled in, they'd have to retreat to the village or face near certain death. But they still didn't have the plant samples they needed.
1: As afternoon came on, Modwall turned down a narrow path he hadn't seen before, carved through the middle of an imposing boulder. Just beyond the stone, the path seemed to open up onto a thin ledge.
0: Modwall stepped out and took in the scene. What it appeared to be a ledge was actually a shoreline. A small lake lay before him. He continued forward, approaching
1: the muddy banks. But after a few steps, Madwal stopped short and gasped. The snow was melted, offering him a rare view of the Bear Valley floor, and what he saw horrified him.
0: The shores of the lake were covered in hundreds of dead bodies.
1: His guides immediately turned and fled, but Modwall stayed behind with his assistant to examine the site. The forest ranger guessed there were about 200 corpses there.
0: They were decayed, but not completely. The snow and ice had preserved the remains, making it hard to tell just how old they were. Bloated flesh clung to some of the bones, reminding Modwall of inflated rubber and the skulls stared at him with broad, unnerving smiles and hollow eye sockets.
1: The two men poked around the beach for a little longer, but the storm clouds had moved in, and, fearing
0: for their safety, they decided to return home. When Monwall reached the town, he immediately reported the findings to his superiors, British government officers. They wondered if Japan had tried to invade India, crossing covertly through the Himalayas, Perhaps this unit had died in the mountains, but more could be coming.
1: That scenario seemed unlikely. If these were soldiers, they would have died only a few weeks or months ago. But the corpses at Lake Rupkand had clearly been there for a long time.
0: A Scottish lieutenant retraced Modwell's steps up to the lake to search for more evidence. He retrieved some tattered pieces of clothing and a few wooden utensils. It wasn't much to go on, but British officials guessed they were about 100 years old.
1: Some of the villagers who lived closest to Rupkind disagreed. They believed the corpses could be closer to 700 years old, and they knew exactly how they died.
0: These locals believed Nunda Devi, a manifestation of the Hindu goddess Parvati, presided over their region, and she was to blame.
1: According to legend, hundreds of years ago, Nunda Devi visited the local king Jasdaval and his queen. The monarchs treated her rudely, and in retaliation, she cursed his land with drought and
0: plague. A penitent Jasdaval and his entourage set out on a pilgrimage to her temple. But even on this solemn occasion, the king couldn't help himself. He brought all the comforts of home along with him, including his beloved pregnant wife, although women were forbidden on such a journey.
1: One night, Jasdavil made camp on a narrow ridge overlooking Lake Rupkand. In a display of blatant disrespect, he summoned a troop of dancing girls to perform a show. And Nunda Devi watched on angrily. First, the king had brought women along on the pilgrimage. Now he flaunted his wealth rather than humbling himself to the goddess. The final straw was when his wife gave birth, sullying the sacred land.
0: The insolence infuriated Nunda Devi. She punished Justavl, sending hail and storms down on his party like cannonballs from the sky. The hailstones shattered skulls and drove the royal party off the ridge and onto the shores of the lake, where every one of them perished.
1: The villagers of the region have continued to make that same pilgrimage every 12 years or so, with a little more humility and respect than the king. The rotting skeletons at Lake Rupkand offered ample warning not to defy the will of the goddess.
0: In fact, many of the villagers who knew the terrain were already aware of the skeletons, but rarely spoke of them aloud. So the government of India hadn't learned about the corpses until Madhwal's encounter.
1: The ancient story explained everything, but many officials dismissed it as a religious myth. They didn't believe the bodies could be 700 years old. They weren't decomposed enough. As Madhwal noted, they still had flesh and
0: clothes clinging to them. The officials had no way to figure out how old the bones were, so the mystery lay dormant for the time being. Especially with the war still raging, the Indian and British authorities had higher priorities. As 1943's harsh winters set in, there was little opportunity to go back to Rupkind and learn more.
1: It wasn't until June 1955 that the outside world learned about Rupkund. Madwal and his boss, Deputy Minister of Forests, Jagmohan Singh Nagy, were working in the area when villagers mentioned the skeletons. Apparently Negi hadn't heard of them, so Madhwal
0: told him the story. Negi was intrigued, and he released a statement from the Forestry Service alerting the public to this bizarre discovery. But he too dismissed the villagers' story about the origin of the bodies.
1: Nagy guessed the bones were about a hundred years old, but he didn't base his estimate on much more than gut instinct. He speculated these could indeed be the bones of an attacking army, but he didn't think they were Japanese soldiers. He thought they came from another military expedition, one that happened a century earlier in 1841.
0: In the early 1840s, an Indian general led troops across the border into Tibet. The general won battle after battle, to the point where some members of the Tibetan government wondered if he had supernatural abilities.
1: According to one legend, the authorities turned to the state oracle of Tibet, who charmed a golden bullet for them. In the next battle, the Tibetan military killed the general with this bullet and his men fled back into the mountains. There, the soldiers encountered a blizzard and died
0: on the shores of Lake Rupkund. Whether you believe the stories about a blessed golden bullet, this narrative had historical support. An Indian general did invade Tibet in 1841, only to encounter difficulties in the extreme snow and ice of the mountains.
1: So the explanation caught on in the press and rapidly gained popularity. But the deputy minister didn't have any proof to support his account. It was simply conjecture.
0: Meanwhile, as August turned to September, the weather cleared and the trail to Rupkind became passable again. Modwall and Nagy knew they only had a brief window to act. It was time to return to the Lake
1: of Skeletons.
0: Coming up, the dangerous journey back to the historic site. Listeners, most of you probably know that I host another podcast series called Serial Killers. What you may be surprised to learn is that we've been working on that podcast for five years now. So as a special treat for the fans, we've prepared an anniversary series examining the mythology surrounding four of the most feared killers who ever lived. Kemper, Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer. This four-part series uncovers the men behind the mayhem, analyzing what turned them into killers and how their lethal behavior made them renowned for all the wrong reasons. Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any true crime or storytelling fan, and this fifth anniversary special is not one to miss. Check it out today by following Serial Killers, free and only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. In 1942,
1: forest ranger Madwal was hunting wildflowers in the Himalayas when he stumbled upon a gruesome sight a lake high in the mountains surrounded by rotted skeletons. Speculation ran rampant about who they were and how they got there. And finally, in 1955, the local forestry department took part in an official expedition to the site.
0: The journey to Rupkind is a five-day hike from the nearest village through some of the most picturesque and treacherous terrain in the world. When the team ascended through thick mists, they crossed idyllic meadows of rare wildflowers and overgrown forests.
1: As Modwal turned toward the narrow trail that leads to Rupkind, he knew what to expect. It had been 13 years almost to the day since he'd last set foot at Rupkind, but that
0: first trip was still burned in his mind. As Modwal braced for the ghastly sight of the skeletons, he stopped short. Something was wrong. Ripkind had changed. The bones had moved.
1: All the bodies had been dismembered and separated, but Madwal remembered the corpses as intact. He figured in the intervening years avalanches and rockslides had hammered the valley, scattering the bones.
0: If Modwall had thought this area was dangerous before, now he knew even the ground under his feet could shift at a moment's notice. He and Nagy would have to work quickly.
1: As they sifted through the site, it was impossible to tell how many skeletons might lay buried under even more rocks, waiting to be uncovered by the next tremor or storm. They worked quickly to get as much information as they could, no matter how gruesome the process they gathered a small collection of bones, flesh, and other culturally significant artifacts.
0: The bamboo sticks and old-fashioned umbrellas all suggested primitive technology, the stuff of a bygone era. It still wasn't clear exactly how bygone, though, and Modwell barely had time to consider the question.
1: Suddenly, as the team sifted through the rubble, several huge boulders came crashing down into the valley. The giant rock smashed some of the skeletons around Rupkin, destroying
0: several potential samples. As the dust settled, everyone regained their composure. They'd lost some bones, but there was no shortage of skeletons at the lake. So they began to piece together what had happened there. First, they noted the mass of skeletons was huddled together at the northeast edge of the lake that placed them directly below the only entrance to Rupkind, the same entrance the team had just come through.
1: That narrow path in a penetratingly cold blizzard might have created a wind tunnel. Blasted by a high-velocity gust of frigid
0: air, the entire party likely froze to death all at once. At least, that's what the team figured at a glance. Even if that was true, it still left plenty of questions who these skeletons had been, how they'd ended up in the mountains, and when they died.
1: Answers would only come from further research in the lab. The team collected a pair of skulls, leg and arm bones, and a jawbone. Then they sent them to a nearby university for further analysis.
0: In the years to come, with a number of scientific advancements and an increasing cache of artifacts from the lake of skeletons, technicians were able to determine approximate ages of the bones. This meant they used radiocarbon dating, a revolutionary method that had been developed only 10 years prior in
1: Chicago. Carbon is present in the atmosphere, the food we eat, and just about everything around us. All living creatures absorb vast quantities throughout their lives, and this includes a natural amount of radioactive carbon-14. But when they die, that carbon-14 begins to break down, and it generally does so at a predictable rate.
0: With carbon dating, scientists can measure the amount of carbon-14 in dead tissue. This tells the researchers how long the carbon has been decaying, and in turn, roughly how old the dead tissue is.
1: Researchers estimated the bones were as old as 800 years. This almost exactly fit the villagers' narrative of an arrogant king and a vengeful goddess. Suddenly, the possibility that the bodies were victims of Nunda Devi's wrath didn't seem like religious superstition after all.
0: More discoveries challenged Deputy Nagy's theory that the skeletons were an army from 1841. Almost one-third of the bodies were female and several were children.
1: And the researchers found no weapons among the victims, either. You'd expect an army to have swords, guns, and shields. Instead, the researchers collected cooking
0: implements, decorative bracelets, and carved sticks. This, too, largely debunked Nagy's guesses. So the floodgates opened for everyone to speculate on where the skeletons came from.
1: The villagers believed their stories about the hailstorm but only a few skulls showed signs of hail damage. Most were intact, suggesting they hadn't been killed by hail. Others
0: thought these were traders traveling between Tibet and India to sell wares. But most of the artifacts Maudwall had gathered were personal effects. Not only was there no sign of tradable goods, there were no animals like pack mules among the bones. Additionally, there was no viable trading path through the mountains.
1: Perhaps these were victims of an epidemic, sent to quarantine in the peaks. But the bodies were in remarkably good condition, with no signs of illness. Some even proposed this was the site of a mass ritual suicide in tribute to Nanda Devi. That would explain how so many people died all at once. Except it was unlikely that women and children would have been part of such ceremonies.
0: The only real evidence that existed pointed at where these people came from. The researchers guessed the bodies belonged to peoples of Western India or possibly modern-day Pakistan. But even that was far from certain.
1: The mysteries attracted tourists who were fascinated by the case. Starting in the 60s and 70s, hikers regularly made the dangerous pilgrimage to see the site for themselves. With limited protections, people were essentially free to move the bones, overturn rocks, and otherwise disturb the scene. They stacked the remains in morbid tribute and even stole
0: artifacts and
1: body parts.
0: But American anthropologist William Sachs was different. In 1978, he learned about Lake Rupkind while studying at Benares Hindu University. He was fascinated, so he and a classmate hired a guide and journeyed to Rupkind. But they'd barely set foot in the valley when Sax's vision went pure white. An
1: unexpected blizzard blinded them. Sax called out to the other members of his party, but they couldn't find each other in the whiteout conditions.
0: Sax was getting colder and weaker by the minute, He knew if he didn't get out of the valley of Rupkind, he might end up as another skeleton on its shores. Groping through the blinding white mists, he managed to crawl away from the shoreline and find his companions. They'd all barely survived. The whole team
1: was sick, and the long trip down the mountain didn't help. By the time they got back to town, Sax needed ten days of bed rest to recover.
0: Battered and bruised, weary and ill, Sachs walked away from the experience, sure of one thing. He needed answers about what haunted Lake Rupkind.
1: He dove into study, learning everything he could about the local culture. He memorized the folk songs of the villagers who lived near the lake, especially those that told of Nanda Devi's wrath. He even went on the Rajat, the pilgrimage in the goddess's honor, something
0: no Westerner had ever done before. Unlike the previous researchers, Sachs believed the villagers. He didn't necessarily subscribe to their religion, but he was an anthropologist and his work was built on the idea that myths were based in real history. In short, he suspected the people who lived near Rupkind knew best what had happened there.
1: Perhaps the skeletons really did belong to a group of pilgrims. Perhaps even the royal party that offended Nanda Devi and paid the ultimate price. But to prove their authenticity, Sachs could rely on oral traditions and rituals. He'd have to put the legends under the microscope using modern technology.
0: Coming up, new discoveries reveal ancient truths about Lake Rupkind. Now, back to the story.
1: For 60 years, researchers could only guess what happened to the hundreds of skeletons around Lake Rupkind. And as words spread about the grisly scene, the valley became a tourist hotspot, finally catching the interest of anthropologist William Sachs. He set out to solve the mystery once and for all.
0: Luckily, in the years since the expeditions of the 1950s, carbon dating technology had come a long way. When the first tests were done, scientists had worked on the assumption that the levels of carbon in the atmosphere were essentially stable.
1: But the flaws in early carbon dating methods eventually became clear. Namely, carbon levels weren't consistent. There were huge fluctuations thanks to pollution and nuclear weapons tests. Additionally, carbon levels naturally varied by
0: region. So with a new batch of samples, William Sachs hoped to accurately pinpoint the dates when the skeletons died. But he'd need fresh samples, meaning he and a team of fellow researchers had to return to Lake Rupkind.
1: In September 2003, the National Geographic team gathered a camera crew, geneticists, anthropologists, and a geologist. Their diverse backgrounds meant they could explore all the angles, analyzing the biological, historical, and even geographical
0: evidence. In the morning before they left for the expedition, Sachs stopped by a temple to pay respects to Nunda Devi. He'd internalized the stories of her wrath, and out of respect for the locals and Nanda Davy herself, he prayed for the expedition. Then the team made their way back to Rupkind.
1: Thanks to years of tourism, the path to Rupkind was well defined and safer than ever before. But the site itself still held immense challenges. The team set up camp about a three-hour hike from the lake but they'd have to move quickly each morning to take full advantage of the time they had.
0: Even in September, the weather around Ripkind was volatile. There was one reliable pattern. Every day around noon, the temperature dropped sharply and winds whipped through the valley. The team would need to leave by this time every day or risk their lives by staying. To
1: make matters worse, when Professor Sachs and his team arrived at Rupkind, the site was a mess. Decades of tourism had scattered bones across the shores, sometimes randomly, but some remains lay in eerie piles
0: like markers. And as was typical for Rupkind, the landscape had shifted as well. Few of the skeletons remained intact. If it had been difficult to count the dead before, now, it would be near impossible. The researchers guessed the site held anywhere between 300 and 700 bodies altogether.
1: They made little progress on their first day of work. A sudden fog rolled in and shrouded the work site. Sachs and the team reluctantly packed up and headed back to their base camp. They hoped to return the next day, but storms
0: raged all through the night. When they woke up, the trail to Rupkind was blanketed with snow that made the hike too dangerous. Another day passed, and the mission seemed hopeless.
1: But on day three, the weather cleared up. Sachs returned to the lake, and immediately his luck began to turn. The team found copper rings, pieces of glass, and even the shards of what could have been a centuries-old wooden musical instrument. Even more exciting, they uncovered an iron spear, the first weapon ever found at the site, reopening the possibility that this was an invading
0: army. At one edge of the lake, Sachs' team found something sticking out of the ground, mostly obscured under giant slabs of rock. At first glance, Sachs thought it might be an animal.
1: They hoisted the massive stones aside for a better look. They worked slowly, shifting stone after stone aside, cautious not to damage whatever it was.
0: Finally, they freed it from the ground.
1: It was an almost wholly intact human corpse, preserved in pristine condition under the rocks. Its flesh remained on the bones, giving Sax and his colleagues
0: viable tissue samples. With this find, they hoped they could at least pinpoint the date when the skeletons died. Then, historical records and demographic data might lead them to an answer about where these people came from and how hundreds died at once. The team
1: sent their specimens to labs in India and Europe. The results both
0: confirmed and confounded what people knew about Rupkind. First, the bodies were even older than originally estimated. More advanced forms of carbon dating placed them in the 9th century, probably around 800 CE. They all died at the same approximate time, possibly during a hailstorm, although only three or four of the bodies actually showed damage from hail. And strangely, DNA samples show
1: two distinct groups. Some were from the Brahmin caste of India. This is the highest rank in the caste system, the one generally reserved for
0: priests. The others were their guides and servants, based on indentations in the skulls that suggested they'd carried heavy loads atop their heads. All
1: this supported William Saxe's theory. The folk songs had accurately memorialized an ill-fated journey to appease Nanda Devi.
0: It likely wasn't a king's pilgrimage, they found no royal artifacts among the bodies. But William Sachs still believed the dead at Rupkind were pilgrims undertaking the Rajat. On their journey, it's possible they encountered a hailstorm that pushed them off the ridge to their deaths.
1: Except, as far as we know, the Rajat didn't exist in 800 CE. The earliest known pilgrimage happened in the 15th century, some 600 years after the bodies supposedly died. And various items found among the skeletons are prohibited on the Rajat, like leather goods and that wooden musical instrument Saxe's team found.
0: Additionally, there's no evidence of any other pilgrimage route through that area either. The clues just didn't add up.
1: But the researchers didn't have any better explanations. So they tried to determine if there was a grain of truth in this idea. Even if these travelers didn't die on the Rajat specifically, perhaps they were on another ancient long-lost pilgrimage no longer known to historians or locals. Over time,
0: the songs and legends
1: conflated the two journeys.
0: But some have continued to question those results. So when DNA research advanced, they reran many of the original tests.
1: Luckily for the researchers, geneticists already had an extensive database of DNA from various Indian populations. They could compare the results to those from other nations, tracing ancestry lines to determine which groups may have mingled hundreds or
0: thousands of years ago. This kind of information might be lost in thousands of years of history, but it remains baked into the very fiber of our beings.
1: In 2019, a group of scientists published their results from a study that looked at the remains of 38 separate bodies identified during past expeditions. And their findings astounded investigators.
0: There was no single catastrophic event that wiped out all those people. There were three, at least. One occurred in the first millennium CE. And then... Roughly a 1,000 years later, there were two more in the 18th or 19th centuries.
1: This meant a significant portion of the dead didn't come from some ancient pilgrimage lost to history. They only died around 300 years ago. And even stranger, one of those recent groups weren't Indian,
0: but Greek. William Sachs insisted if there'd been a foreign group passing through the Himalayas at that time, local villagers would know about it. Their songs recorded major historical events from as far back as 700 years. Surely, the appearance of Greek people in treacherous mountain ranges would warrant a mention, too.
1: But no one in Greece or India can find evidence of a Greek group who went to the Himalayas and disappeared nor is there any clear explanation for why they'd be there.
0: It's this last caravan that poses the greatest mystery around Lake Rupkind.
1: These Greek travelers died within recent, well-documented history, and yet they remain completely absent from it.
0: It seems Rupkind is designed to confound. Every scientific advancement provides answers, but they simply don't fit together. And until we can reconcile the details about these three disparate groups of travelers, the Lake of Skeletons will hold its secrets within its depths.
1: Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time with a new episode. For more information on Rupkind, the Lake of Skeletons, amongst the many sources we used, we found Douglas Preston's New Yorker article, The Skeletons at the Lake, extremely
0: helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify.
1: See you next time.
0: And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer.
1: Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Thomas Dolan Gavitt, edited by Amber Von Schassen and Angela Jorgensen, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Chelsea Wood, and produced by Bruce Katovich. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.